For March 29th, 2010, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 91, Prince Kong. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From the left coast, that's right, I am back. God's in his heaven and all's right with the world. And I am in Los Angeles. I am your host, Matthew Rather, here with a gargantuan, engorged, gigantically swollen panel uh, Mm -hmm. to overthink (laughs) many things, including our question of the week. This week, pegged to some news that we'll talk about a little later. Uh, Of all, we've seen so many comic book action movies, and we're actually, we're not that far off from the beginning of summer movie season, which creeps farther and farther and farther back into spring, that summer movie season will soon be like, you know, February through October, if it isn't already. Um, so uh, in, in, in light of all the comic book uh, adaptations we've seen, what has yet been unadapted uh, that you would like to see adapted, or what could, we, uh, what could we re-adapt? That is to say, what new comic book movie would you like to see? Uh, joining us for an, an unprecedented second week in the row, uh, if he can only put Modern Warfare on pause. I just paused it, okay? I'm for 30 seconds. In time, to, uh, in time to answer the question. That's why I'm vamping for him. It's <laughs> Matt Belinke. Uh, I'm going to go with – I think somebody else is going to have this one because it's so painfully obvious. I'm going to go with Archie. <laughs> I don't there's know. Never been an Archie movie. I don't believe there's been an Archie movie. Here's the thing: I don't really know what the deal with Archie is. He goes to high school. There What's are two the girls that may or may Archie? not want to date him, or go steady with him, or be pinned by him. I don't know if it's set in the past or some parallel version of the present, which is sort of sanitized for eleven year olds. Uh, I don't know if Jughead is an antagonist or a best friend or both. Um, there's a lot. I, I, basically, I'm waiting for the movie to understand what the big deal about Archie is. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Why does he wear a crown? What, Jughead? Why does <laughs> Jughead, wear a Jughead crown? wears the crown, right? Yeah. Right, right. And I want to know is that is is he actually king of something? Well, he wants in the Archie movie. I bet you Jughead is revealed to be royalty, and that the crown that he's been wearing the whole time <laughs> turns out to mean that he's a prince, and they all go to his country and like try to behave like upper class people. But I'm gonna make a princess. It's the Jughead Diaries. <laughs> I'm gonna make a completely right field prediction, but just based on the way these movie adaptations usually go, Jughead is going to be entirely computer generated <laughs> for no for no reason. He's gonna be like a normal person, but he's gonna be computer generated. Yeah, awesome. Yes, uh, that you know. So uh, horning in on Matt's answer there because he can't believe that he's been uh, he's been ousted for a second week in the world. So angry! <laughs> it's uh, it is Peter Fenzel, comic book adaptation, oh. Pete. Okay, so I got I got two answers for this one. I got the crazy, da-da, surrealistic, neo-futurist answer and the actual answer. Uh, so the crazy answer is that I would love to see uh, a sort of uh, Dr. Zhivago-esque movie based on the family circus. Da! You took mine! I hate you! <laughs> Where we see that dotted line, like, plotted slowly and inexorably across the landscape. If you wanted it, you just could have mentioned it in the back channel, Matt, and I would have let you have it. I didn't want it that badly, as is the as is the case of me uh, reserving a second one for another uh, another answer. And I'm sure that one is not something anyone's going to take. But anyway, yes, if you're unfamiliar with the family circus, it's a work of genius. If by genius you mean um, something that you you pick up the phone and you dial a number and then you say, "Hey, like here's a here's a comic book uh, or a, a comic strip." But uh, but yeah, to see the endless uh, tragic journeys of the little kid as he leaves one side of the house and comes in the other side of the house and does a million things in between. Um, Matt, I'll let you uh, uh, embellish further if you want to explore that beautiful universe. Um, but the one that I really wanted to cite, uh, which I've, I often bring up in, in these kinds of conversations, but no one ever believes me, and I, they're probably for good reason, uh, is that I would love to see an Infinity Gauntlet movie. Uh, I would love to see Thanos the Titan uh, imprison eternity and death and Galactus and like seize ultimate power over the universe and have a series of trumped up fights against the Marvel superheroes. I just, that whole sort of trippy, 
like era in in Marvel Comics, um, where like outer space and New York City seem to sort of coexist and have the same interests. Uh, I, I don't know. I would love to see Thanos on screen, hammed up by some sort of really thick set, ridiculous person. And as of course, as I in, implica- you know, indicated in um, uh, the open thread this week, talking about uh, Chris Evans, I would love to see Adam Warlock on screen because he's one of the most uh, ridiculous characters in terms of uh, Marvel character who's truly dated and very difficult to look at. Uh, I would love to see what people would do if forced to put Adam Warlock on screen. So Infinity Gauntlet is my other answer. There you go. Uh, yep. Moving on through the alphabet, Mr. Mark Lee. Oh, yo. Hey. Uh, in case you're going to tell, I'm here uh, next to Mr. Matt Belinke, IRL. Here yeah, in New York City. Because we did it last week. It's the trend now, right? Yeah, we're all meeting up in the meat space. It's exciting. Um, <laughs> God, that's it. <laughs> that's, that's, I love that word, meat space. It's a good word. Meat space. <laughs> um, we're also here with our friend, who shall be known as John, um, who is uh, listening in and typing funny things into the, into, the, uh, into the Ustream. So, John, keep it clean. Um, my answer, I'm not very particularly comic book savvy, but I will say that uh, I would love to see a Calvin and Hobbes a TV show or a movie adaptation. I assume this hasn't been done. I mean, it seems like a pretty obvious thing, right? I love how all of us are picking, like, comic strips. <laughs> <laughs> well, except for Pete. Because, like, I, honestly, like, I, don't really, I haven't really read comic books. I'm not, like, you know, a Marvel or DC kind of guy. Um, I feel like when we pick this as the topic, I mean, like, these topics get suggested for the question, and we all think, do I have something funny to say about that? And all of us except Pete thought, I don't really read comic books, but it would be funny if one of us just picked a newspaper comic strip as, like, (laughs) the the one wacky one. Yeah. (laughs) But they already made two Garfield movies and a Marmaduke movie, for Christ's sake. How much worse could it possibly get? (laughs) Did they actually make the Marmaduke movie, or is that coming out soon? Oh, has it not come out yet? That's I don't remember its existence. I know that it's, it's, it's roughly contemporaneous. Oh, no, it's a 2010 movie. It's coming out. It's actually just one frame of celluloid of, an, yeah. of a dog wearing sunglasses. <laughs> it's just like you just stare at it for Who's now. the human actor in Marmaduke? I'm assuming there is one. Uh, Ron Perlman. And, oh, no, no. Oh, he's no. A voice, no, he's the voice of the chup, Chupadagra. Hellboy no, is um, here. No, the human, the, human, the human actor is William H. Macy is the human actor. Um. Marmaduke is voiced by Owen Wilson, but no, the human actor is William H. Macy. Marmaduke is Owen Wilson? Yeah, that seems about right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Jeremy Piven plays a dog, I think. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> so so William, H. Ma- William H. Macy has finally decided to go ahead and buy that like condo in Cabo San Diego. William H. Macy has, ten, uh, has five movies currently in development or production, yeah. um, including Wild Hogs 2 and okay. House of Reanimators. Wild Hogs can't be broken? Yeah, well- <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that movie. <laughs> I love Wild If I love you, mean hated it when I saw it in the theater. It was actually one of the first movies I hated in the theater. You know, but. who did I tell the story that I heard about David Cross and Chipmunks too? Everyone, <laughs> you told that to Matt and I as we watched it. Oh, uh, right. it, was, it was Blinky and Blinky and I on Thursday night when we saw uh, you. I every, everyone. Well, I'm gonna tell it. I'm gonna tell it to the podcast now. So, like, David Cross took some guff for being in the uh, Chipmunks movie because what happened to his indie cred and whatnot. And he did an interview. Uh, that I don't think I saw, I think this was reported, where he said, yeah, you know, I tried to buy a house in the Hamptons with indie cred, and turns out they didn't take it, so I had to do chipmunks. Hmm. <laughs> Zing. Zing. Moving along, the, the, uh, the, I, the next person to ironically interpret this question is actually probably the biggest comics reader of all of us, Josh McNeil. Well, there's a dubious distinction. <laughs> 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 No, I actually no, am going to go to yeah. in pure size. The, dis- <laughs> the distinction is not dubious, but, uh, you know, I don't know. <laughs> the, the honor involved certainly is. Sure. Uh, I'm going to go sincere on this one. There are two, actually, that I'd really like to see, both of which, sh- neither of which should be a feature film, both of which should be done, um, you know, preferably by, like, the Stars Network. Um for those of you who haven't watched Spartacus Blood and Sand, that certainly uh, that means something uh, particularly lewd and awful. But uh, <laughs> uh, I, I don't know if anyone uh, here has read Preacher. Uh, it was a it was a a long standing uh, series in the Vertigo imprint of DC about um, that sort of really was a modern sort of ultra-violent, uh, very interesting take on religion and what it meant 
uh, it's you know sort of deep south gothic um, fighting angels. It, it was great. I read it. I started reading it. Was about fifteen, and it was one of those things that like made you feel all cool and adult when you were fifteen. Um, Josh, don't you think there are enough movies that use Christianity as the basis for an action movie? Um, yes, but not a single one of them was good. Like what about uh, what about Constantine? Is that should be your point? Yes, I'm not going to argue that. <laughs> it had Rachel, it had Academy Award winner Rachel Weisz in it. How bad could it have been? It did. Uh, you we know what? That, that movie went off yeah, the rails yeah, when you had overthinking golden news. Tilda Swinton <laughs> and Academy Award winner too. Yes. Yeah. Also, two Academy Award winners. In That's concert. a pretty high BAPS number right there. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, sorry we interrupted you, Josh. Yeah, Josh. Sorry. That's okay. Um, no, it's it's uh, the action is sort of secondary to the to the moralizing and the just sort of weird horror of the whole piece. And I think it could be done really well on film, but uh, I don't think. It, and there have been pilots for it for the last ten years, or or scripts floating around, but nobody has ever actually gotten around to making it because I'm not sure they know how. But uh, but one of these days, it's going to be fantastic. It's unfilmable. It may be. Oh yeah, in the the Wikipedia article has a long thing about film adaptations uh, of it. Uh, Preacher comics. All right, let's see. Will he go the ironic comic strip route, or uh, does he actually have a book that he wants to adapt? Mister Jordan Stokes. You're skipping over someone here, aren't you? Is it already to me? Okay. Well, I was going to uh, ironically say Prince Valiant. And basically for the same reason that, uh, that Blinky to- uh, chose Archie, which is that when I every now and then read the comic section in a newspaper, because, you know, I happen to be reading a newspaper, which I don't do all that often, uh, I'll read Prince Valiant. And it's, always, it's like that strip moves so slowly, right? You get one strip per week. And apparently it's been going on telling a continuous story for some absurd amount of time. There used to be like a lot of these sort of serial drama comic strips, right? And now it's like there's Prince Valiant and that's basically all. I don't know, maybe Mark Trail or something like that. What about like no, that. like Mary Worth, Apartment uh, 3G? So there's a handful of them, right? But Prince Valiant, I feel like the production values seem to be a little bit higher. Like, it's always in full color. The art is really distinctive and kind of beautiful. And, like, I'll pick this up and I'll read it, and I, like, I have no idea what's going on. He's supposed to be a knight of Camelot, but the last time I saw him, he was fighting cavemen. Like, I'm serious, cavemen. And I would really love to know what the heck is supposed <laughs> to be happening in Prince Valiant. And I feel like the movie is the only way that will ever happen to isn't, isn't the subtitle Prince Valiant in the Days of King Arthur? I think so. So I may be misinformed about the days of King Arthur and what they constituted. Yeah, and I think that a movie, <laughs> a movie could like clear up a lot of the confusion that you and I are both feeling about this. But because that was already taken, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll do another one, uh, which is actually a comic book. I don't know if any of you ever read Bone, a Jeff Smith. Which is, it's a really great piece of like uh, high fantasy storytelling. I feel like it would be really hard to make into a movie because the, the art is so distinctive and so kind of cartoony. But then there are the cartoony characters and the characters that look like real people. And this kind of works in an ink drawing. Doing it on screen, it would probably turn into like, I mean, you need to get David Lynch or somebody to direct it. And it would be the most horrifying movie ever. But I like horror movies, so I'll, I'll pick Bone. <laughs> Yeah, you're our cool. you're our our expert. You're our subject uh, subject. Jordan, um, weren't you a big fan of a uh, Cerebus? Yeah, they shouldn't make that into a movie. Okay, fair enough. No, they should not make that into a movie. <laughs> they should make it into like a hundred. Mad, mad. They should make it into a hundred awful movies that are all banned and no one ever watches, <laughs> but are also brilliant. No, they should make it into twenty movies that are really really great, and then eighty more movies that are incomprehensible and horribly offensive. Um, I'm sorry. I get all worked up because <laughs> I'm the only freaking person I know who read like the last half of it. Um, and the, the first half is great, but the last half of it is madness. And Jordan lent me his books of Cerebus, and I, I think I threw them out eventually. <laughs> I'm sorry, Jordan. It's all right. I couldn't yeah. have them in my house anymore. <laughs> you, you'll notice that I did give them to you. <laughs> <laughs> hey, let me, let me play devil's advocate here for a second. Would anybody advocate uh, trying to redo Watchmen? Maybe not as a feature film, but as like a multi-part uh, miniseries. I'd like to see Watchmen done as like a coffee commercial. 
like that's really the best way. Like two women are sitting down to drink and being like, hey, do you remember that time? And you'd be like, oh, you mean that time of great moral ambiguity when our heroes were revealed to be like victimized and victimizers at the same time? Yeah, and that time that I had to eat a shark, raw meat with my fingertips and kill my family. What was his name? Jean-Luc. Yeah, that would be great. (laughs) The thing is, like, I don't think there's anything wrong with the Watchmen movie that exists. Like, I know a lot of people don't like it, but I feel like that's not because it wasn't a good adaptation. Yeah, I would would like to maybe see them do a version of uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen that didn't suck. Yeah, all right, I'll give you that. Or a Black Dust. Amen. I'd love to see, what about Why the Last Man? Anyone want to watch that? <laughs> I think they're already working on that, actually. Oh, they are? Oh, who's yeah. playing The Last Man? Is it like Freddie Prinze Jr. or something? Probably. <laughs> <laughs> Let me so, see if I can uh, find out. The- so my answer is not ironic at all. My answer is actually rooted in sound business fundamentals. Uh, it's a, I, there's a quadrant that is that is not addressed by films very often. I mean, you know, summer blockbusters, especially the comic book movies, are targeted at your under 25 men, right? At your teenage boys and and uh, and young men, and no one really is going after the older women demographic with big commercial movies. So I would like to see a uh, a film adaptation of the comic strip Kathy. because um i think that that's what i think that that's it's a forward-looking you know sex positive feminist uh text that really you know should be brought to a wider audience i mean they've made this joke on 30 rock before but in many ways 30 rock is kind of a tv adaptation of kathy like the neurotic 30 something year old woman who's afraid of uh, living out her days unmarried (laughs) With the, alone with the cats. But you chocolate. guys are going to agree with me that it jumped the shark when she married Irving, right? <laughs> Not everyone was, know that in our house. No! Kathy I was very her. happy for Kathy to have her special day, man. I thought that was a beautiful moment. <laughs> you I'm not kidding. What? <laughs> no, I'm talking to Matt. You know, like, okay. how could you, how could he begrudge poor Kathy, you know, her, her, her day, her moment? It would be like the girls from Sex and the City taking an abstinence pledge. But Kathy gets married, she ceases to be Kathy in any meaningful sense of the word Kathy. <laughs> so yeah. the Why the Last Man movie is coming out in 2011, and it's written by, among other people, the du- a dude who wrote a bunch of episodes of Cleopatra 2525, 25, a couple episodes of Zeta <laughs> Warrior Princess, one episode of Buffy Vampire Slayer, and one episode of Mowgli, The New Adventures of the Jungle Book, called Mowgli P.I., <laughs> So this one's going to be pretty good, guys. It's going to be pretty great. <laughs> there's a Mowgli P.I.? <laughs> no, I think it's just like there's an episode of that TV show, which was made for like the Disney Channel or something, where he plays a detective. Are you talking about Tailspin? Because I feel like you're talking <laughs> about Tailspin. <laughs> he also is partially responsible for – jungle... sc- oh, sorry. He wrote the screenplay for the Red Dawn remake that's coming out as well, which is coming out uh, with a bunch of people whose names I don't recognize being in this Red Dawn remake that's coming out later this year. That is the panel tonight. Uh, Matthew Blink, Peter Fenzel, Mark Lee, Josh McNeil, Jordan Stokes, and myself, Matt Rather. Uh, we want you to get in on the action so you know what to do. If you ha- hear anything that you want to be incorporated as your feedback, you can email it to podcast at overthinkingit.com uh, or call the voicemail, which is 203-285-6401. That's 203-285-6401. We haven't mentioned this in a while, but you know that if you write us, you have to give us your exact longitude and latitude in degrees, minutes, and seconds, right? Right. Uh, we also are live streaming the show on, on our Ustream channel, and we may pipe in with some comments from the chat room uh, as we go. We'll try to do it in a non-distracting way, but uh, it's great to have everyone watching us live and to incorporate the voices into the, into the, uh, into the show. It's like every, every episode is a listener feedback episode. And you can find us uh, at about half past six uh, Pacific, half past nine Eastern. Those are American times. I don't know. Does someone in the chat room want to want to figure out the um uh want to figure out the utc the greenwich mean time uh thing for that keep in mind that uh the u.s is on daylight savings time now um uh so you can you can find us online if you want to watch us live all right jumping right into it uh alexander bevier in the the uh the chat room says comic book adaptations is that directors use the comic book as the storyboards and and fenzel um Counters with uh, counters with Sin City, which was taken pretty much a lot of it frame for frame out of uh, out of the book, and was fantastic, right, Pete? 
I mean, that was my take on it. I know some people might be uh, un- un- uh, unfond of, of the piece. It's, it's a bit controversial, but I thought it was a really great exercise. I thought it was really well done. We all saw that together, I believe, too. An anniversary of something that's coming up, I believe, as well, right? By which I refer to Blinky's birthday, right? Oh. <laughs> Didn't we see that on your birthday? Didn't we all go see Sin City on your birthday? Did we yeah, all like no, it? I think I think well, it was an emergency backup birthday plan. We were supposed to go skydiving, yeah. <laughs> but since skydiving is unavailable because of inclement weather, I yeah. felt like it was the perfect weather to see a sort of gritty film noir. <laughs> <laughs> skydiving, uh, skydiving is your Moby Dick. Matt, you know, because right, isn't it like uh, how many times have you tried to to skydive and been thwarted by uh, by the weather? The answer is uh, three at this point. I'm actually trying to. <laughs> And I'm personally um, but, convinced at this point that it's also like Moby Dick because if he ever does successfully skydive, he will die. Like, <laughs> <laughs> the odds of it being rainy on three days, three birthdays in a row like that are not that great. Well, my Somebody birthday is at like the rainiest point of the year. <laughs> and you always go to southern India to celebrate it. There are, meta- <laughs> there, are like, there are like rhyming metaphors about how my birthday has a lot of rain showers. <laughs> <laughs> You can use I, that to deduct when his birthday is, listeners. Yeah. Post your your guesses in the comments. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, you know, there was this thing where Robert Robert Rodriguez, like, I think he either left or temporarily ducked out of the Directors Guild because he uh, shared his directing credit on Sin City with Frank Miller. Right. Because he was he was acknowledging the fact that he basically took the visuals right out of uh, right out of the book. Nothing bad appears to happen to you if you duck out of the director's guild. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, like, yeah, no, uh, exactly. Robert Rodriguez Spike is directing Spike Predators Spike right four, now. Right? Spike Hits 4 was brilliant. It broke all kinds of uh, records. Hearts. <laughs> I believe it's called Spy Kids 4D, and it actually takes place over a long period of time. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. It's uh, you know there are the tales of rats on the ground tickling your tickling your ankles. That's a callback to episode ninety, everyone. So, Pete, you were at something called PAX. Why yes! are you so interested in peace? <laughs> I'm actually interested in Touched by an Angel reruns. That's why I go to PAX. Um, I made that joke a little bit earlier on the back channel. And I, even though not a lot of people laughed, I stuck with it because I'm perseverant like that. All right. So PAX is the Penny Arcade Expo. This is actually PAX East, the East Coast version of the Penny Arcade Expo. It is a conference for gaming, uh, video gaming, board gaming, card gaming, uh, gaming. Um, not the game uh, featuring mystery and whatnot. Uh, <laughs> yeah, not uh, the one featuring Arcade. Michael Douglas either. No, not the one featuring Michael Douglas and not Triple H, the cerebral assassin. None of those things. No, I wouldn't go to conferences about all those things. <laughs> we, you go to, would you go to like Triple H Pickup Con? Is that what you go to where like Michael Douglas and Triple H teach you how to pick up ladies? <laughs> <laughs> the game, game, game. Do like, you remember conference? when uh, Triple H's gimmick used to be that he was the Greenwich snob? Yeah, he used to drink some bottled water and spray it, spit it in the air, like he's so decadent that he could waste bottled water I just like that. Gimmick that he was like so upper middle class. <laughs> yeah, Greenwich Mean Street Posse, man. That was before DX. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was hilarious. Hey, Hunter Hearst Helmsley isn't exactly a street name. Um, uh, but anyway, yes. So PAX East was a big convention. It was here in Boston. There were some people from Overthinking It there. I was not there with the Overthinking Contingent. Uh, I actually went on Saturday night and Saturday night only primarily to scout a play that was uh, being performed at PAX. But I did stick around for a while and, and, and get a sense for it. And I'll tell you about it because it's a very exciting place. Um, so the play that I saw, which I will talk about first, was um, by a group called the uh, Critical Threat Theater uh, Company. And they're out of D.C. It was called of Dice and Men, uh, and it was a play about a Dungeons and Dragons playgroup where one of their members is enlisting in the military, and this is based off of the true-to-life experience is of one the of their playwright. members is, is very tall and has cognitive deficits. Um, I think they address that sort of attitude in the play, and they don't do it flatteringly. But no, he, he's the one who plays the knight, actually, is, is really what it boils down to. Um, Does he just want to like start a farm where he can pet the beholders? <laughs> That's what I said at the end. I went to a talk back afterwards, and I, I sort of complained that there weren't any rabbits. Um, but yeah, no, it's... Um, 
It was actually very, very good. And the the Critical Threat Theater Company, uh, the uh, Cameron McNary is the name of the playwright. Uh, you know, his his wife is the managing director. It seems like it's been a real labor of love of, for them to try to get this thing produced. This was just a stage reading, uh, but it was a really excellent, sincere take on like uh, sort of the mentality of kind of aging, not aging, but like you know, thirty so aging gamers. Um, People approaching around the time of life that I know I, I'm at, and I think a lot of the overthinkers are at, where we, we grew up you with think. these, you think, um, where we grew up around a lot of these uh, games and, and these sort of fantasies. And there's this call as you get older to dispel these fantasies and to actually, I mean, they say embrace reality, but really pick up different fantasies. And that's addressed in the play, too, where there's a guy who's a football fan versus, and he's married to a gamer and they sort of share their, their interests with each other. And it's sort of they each have their own thing. And this guy has a big monologue in it about how football doesn't matter either. Like, like Dungeons and Dragons doesn't matter Football doesn't matter. It was a really great play, and it was really well crafted. And the the actors had only seen the script a couple a little while earlier, but I thought it was really well put together. And they're looking to do fundraising and stuff and move their stuff along. So if this comes to your town and you have a chance to see it, I'd recommend it. That's very um, cool. I like. Yeah, that. it was definitely I mean, very. That's a, that's a play that should be kind of gone around to the. It probably needs a big city to find a critical mass of people, or at least a medium sized city to find a critical mass of people who can, uh, you know, who would fill who would fill a theater for a weekend. But they should just take that around the country, Tyler Perry style, you know, and not yeah, yeah, uh, n- not try to get it produced at a commercial theater, uh, but yeah. uh, you know, or a nonprofit, one of the big nonprofits. But they should just you know go on the thing. I mean, it's depressing actually. Uh, when you think about the number of things in life that don't matter. Mm, like, uh, what about your fresh Bentleys, Rock? It doesn't matter about your fresh Bentleys. <laughs> it doesn't matter. No, um, no, it is true. Not a lot of stuff does really matter, like, a priori. I mean, I have often said that if you ain't Sharon, uh, people ain't Karen. <laughs> they, they come up in the hood and they take everything you're wearing. It's, I think it isn't it the club or is it the hood? I think they do they come from the hood. No, but yeah, that's, no, that's where your stuff is. Anyway, yeah, yeah. fair enough, fair enough. Well, like the, um, the the stuff that we get oddly exercised about. Not well, um, like you know, it doesn't matter who wins American Idol, really. It doesn't mm. matter who wins the Super Bowl, you know. Yeah, and it's funny. I mean, maybe again, overthinking it's the overthinking a drinking game is about to give you another reason to drink. Uh, the play is framed around, I think it's a, a quote, the quote about putting away childish things. That's from, is that from Ecclesiastes as well? Um, no, uh, the, the book of, uh, First Corinthians. Oh, that's from Corinthians. When I was a child, I, you know, I talked like a child. I spake yeah, like a child. Yeah, like First Corinthians I, thirteen or fourteen or something like that. Or? Yeah, and then when I when I grew up, when I became a man, I put away childish things. And then that sort of bookends the play. You know, he says it somewhat early in the play. The protagonist does, and he says it somewhat later in the play. Um, and, it, and it sort of asks the question. You know, well, what is a childish thing? Right? Is this a childish thing? Um, it's funny because in the, in the play he has a box that he puts all of his classic literature in, like Wuthering Heights is, is name-checked in particular. And he has a box where he puts all his, uh, his gaming books in. This is not the guy who goes off to Iraq. This is another character who's going to move away, and he's the protagonist. He's moving to San Francisco. And um, he marks his gaming books as, I'm giving these away. And he marks his classic literature as, like, I'm taking these with me. And at the very end of the play, after he says, his, like, well, what are childish things and what aren't childish things, he switches the boxes. And the implication is that it's childish to think you're ever going to read Wuthering Heights, basically, which I think is kind of amusing though also sad and probably not true i'm sure people read wuthering heights I mean, yeah absolutely uh, we've all been to high school <laughs> yes. we're gonna backpedal away from that one <laughs> it's all right i'll say right there only babies read wuthering heights wuthering heights is for babies i have never seen you so anxious to not offend so, not offend somebody as you are apparently like anxious to not offend the wuthering heights fan demographic <laughs> There's like one person somewhere who I'm getting some sort of weird telepathic signal from, and it's like, I am going to be really upset if you insult Wuthering Heights. Uh, it sounds like the ending, you know, gets a little uh, sort of cheesy in a South Park sort of way. We're like, you know, guys, I've learned something today. Yeah, I mean, it gets kind of there. It definitely kind of gets there. I think it's it's somewhat softened by the fact that the the whole gamer culture and like the Dungeons and Dragons in particular is so, um, I don't know, it's Cerebral isn't really the word, but like so many things are already symbolized right there in front of you. Uh, and, and this is a sort of group of people that are being depicted who are kind of comfortable and natural with a high degree of like sort of removal from the visceral experience of their real lives. Um, so the sort of pontification that happens is actually some of the more sincere stuff that's in the play. Um, 
which is kind of interesting. Uh, you know, it's sort of like this is a moment where I'm actually going to bare my soul to you, but I'm not talking about stuff that would normally be associated with this kind of sincerity. Let me let me put it this way, Pete: Does the play fail its saving throw against Peripatea? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I don't think Wait. anybody saves its or saving does it, throw against does, yeah, it, does it uh, fail its saving throw against Anagnorisis? <laughs> well, it definitely fails its saving throw against Synecdoche. I know that much. Um, but you guys, nerds. <laughs> I can say but, that because I literally, literally have no idea what the hell it is you're talking about. Okay, so here's the thing. The reason I wanted to talk about this play, and we'll talk about PAX in a little bit. I can talk about PAX too, but I wanted to talk about this play briefly and see if any of you guys had opinions of this. Okay, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, Shaun of the Dead. You know, like, we got this thing with the, the play about the Dungeons and Dragons. There was a movie about Dungeons and Dragons too. Uh, it wasn't as good, but it was kind of similar in the way that it approached the subject matter. Sort is that of the one with Marlon Wayans? Yeah. Um, and, and like, so, so there's this geek culture out there, right? And it's sort of been retroactively named geek culture. I don't remember the word geek ever really being used for it when it was actually being introduced or when I felt more of a sincere part of it. Um, but it seems to be the contemporary term. Uh, for this sort of thing. And a lot of geek culture is built around fantasy and sort of fantasy identities and, and assuming the identity of somebody else. Uh, video games, role-playing games, uh, even things like fandom and, and sort of, uh, we've talked about fan fiction, we've talked about um, erotic fan fiction, we've talked about all these different sort of fantasies that people have and, and it's characteristic of geekdom that you have these highly developed, I mean, you can call them pantheons, you can call them phantasmagoria, you can just call them big casts of characters that, that are highly developed and highly choreographed and crystallized for the people who are involved and they slip into whether it's an archetype like a fighter or a dwarf or something much much more specific like you know the little the bigger brother in full metal alchemist right like you you can slide in these characters and you experience things through these characters overthinking it is part of this project we say a lot of things that we would say anyway but we use the vocabulary and symbolism of popular culture and i think we do use geek culture too uh, although we also have a sort of different um border around that than you would find at a place like PAX because we really like Die Hard and you're not going to find Die Hard at PAX. Um, you know, it, it's like there's an element to which people exist as themselves and then they exist in living vicariously through their characters, but vicariously, saying that they're living vicariously is kind of an insult. And in performing arts that I've seen and, and uh, that I've been part of, you know, I've tried to work on these things myself, uh, there, there always seems to be a difficulty in reconciling the craft of acting, the craft of drama, the, the craft of creating fiction um, with this notion of dual identity. It's very hard to represent, and I feel like uh, because the, as soon as you start dividing the characters up in, in the plays or in the movies, uh, it becomes hard to communicate the kind of cogent way in which that experience is lived, right? Like, I don't feel less myself when I'm playing Final Fantasy, right? I don't feel less myself when I am, like, you know, play, playing any video game or, or when I'm playing a role-playing game, when I'm playing my character, um, but I also don't necessarily feel exactly like this other person. And me playing this character versus someone else playing the same character is not the same. It's a hard uh, boundary of realities to, to broach. And it's very hard to portray and imitate because there's so many degrees and layers. I mean, does this make sense to anybody? Yeah. I see this start, like a essential putting, artistic challenge. When you start putting actors on a stage playing characters who are in a sense actors but actors of a particular sort, you engage a lot of, a lot of problems of a lot of kind of lensing effects in aesthetics. Right, right, right. This and is, I mean, I mean I, this, is, this is a problem that, uh, not a problem, and I, I don't mean problem, when I say problem, I don't mean like, oh God, that's a problem, like something we have to solve, like a defect. I mean, uh, I mean it gets kind of naughty and tricky. It, good for overthinking. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it is so, definitely there's definitely a question there. Yeah, right. So you have like uh, uh, think of the Canterbury Tales, right? Where um, Jeffrey uh, Jeffrey Chaucer is writing the Canterbury Tales about uh, a narrator named Jeffrey who's going on these trips, and then he t- he tells a story about all the um, <laughs> all uh, he tells a story about you know all the pilgrims that he sees on the trip with him, and then each of them tells a story, and the story reveals things about uh, about him. I mean, it's it's something akin to that, right, Pete? That you're talking about. I, I think so, definitely. I, I think, yeah, I think I mean, so. It's, it's tricky, Keep though. Giving up? Yeah. No, I'm not giving up. I'm sorry. My mind was just wandering, and I wasn't listening as intently because I just poured a whole lot of stuff out there. So I was definitely like sort of being like, oh, okay. All right. So, so um, explain it to me again. And like, so there's this, I don't, I'm not familiar with exactly what you're talking about, actually. I'll confess. In the, in the Canterbury Tales? Say, say, say it to me again. Canterbury Tales. Jeffrey Chaucer yes. is the writer. Yes. 
His narrator is named Jeffrey. Okay, that's what you're talking about. Who 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 is going on a trip, and then yeah. uh, you know uh, uh, Jeffrey describes to us not entirely reliably the fellow travelers, and each right. of the fellow travelers tells stories and also offers opinions on one another. And there's this right. there's this lensing effect where you kind of don't know on what level you're supposed to to take something. Right, 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 right. I, I would, if I were to pick sort of a, a problematic piece of classical literature that I would maybe compare it more, more to at least the way that I understand it, is think about something like Pilgrim's Progress, right? Where, where, and it's just a lesser work, right, than, than the Canterbury Tales, uh, though quite popular in its day. Um, where, where your sort of desire to participate in a, in a particular sort of specific mythology that's kind of external to yourself and your own invention, or even your own uh, direct experience, uh, changes the way that you think about character. Like, like it's, not, it's not like I put myself in Dungeons & Dragons where I'm really myself telling a story about somebody else. Like, there's a really... Um, immediate individual personal re- relationship between like yourself and your doppelganger, right? Whatever this doppelganger is, and however it's conformed. But there's also this like this this just this um so codified like the the structures around the characters that you play are like very highly crystallized, and there's so much history. Um, whereas I think with with Chanterbury Tales, it's not that there isn't history, but it's that if you're writing a version of yourself, there's something about it that feels more comfortable, even if the degree of artifice or separation from reality is the same. Um, like I've been watching a lot of Mad Men, and all the characters in Mad Men are really masks. They're 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 very, they're very sort of um, deliberately accentuated in a lot of ways. They're supposed to be playing a sort of, you know, in accordance with the sort of marketing angle of this, a very genuine um, slice of life or slice of a, a past life um, from the '60s. Right? It's a world we don't understand, and they but they are playing these archetypes. Um, and and playing Don Draper is probably not much different than playing like a half elf paladin, right? Because he's not a real person, and there's a lot of rules about how he's going to behave. Um, but at the same time, you feel part of it, right? Like like there's something about it that you identify with, you fantasize about, and that's really you. And certainly, John Hamm seems to inhabit it in a sincere way. Um, so is it is it more real or less real to be a wizard than to be like an ideal? family man or not ideal family man in the case of don draper you know like which is more of a fantasy right the the real lives that we see portrayed through imitation or these like you know ninja sword wielding spell casting you know space marine lives that we see portrayed through that same level of of imitation and it seems like i mean it's a it's a question largely of context i suppose yeah how many gamers oh sorry stokes you go ahead I was going to say, are you suggesting that the the wizard is somehow more honest because at least you know that that's pretense, whereas if you were to pretend to be something that actually could exist in the real world, then maybe you're trying to pass it off as the real thing? Is that kind of what you're saying? I mean, that, that's one angle you could take with it, but I don't think the people who get really, really into it see it that way, because eventually they start thinking that the wizards are real. But, no, I mean, not Wait, necessarily. Does, but, that, does that really happen? I mean, I don't think it really does, but at the same time, like people identify with it in a really personal way. You know, I mean, they, people get married in their role-playing characters, you know, like, like this is, this is something that, I mean, I, I don't necessarily think that we breach the, 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 the boundary between fantasy and reality to the point where we have to start putting people in institutions and worry about whether they're going to commit crimes. You know, like, I don't think that we're having people who are totally off their rockers, but there's definitely some sort of reimagining of the self here. That is a genuine experience. If not, um, uh, if not a, I mean, it's so hard because what is you know what is real, right? I feel like the the comparison to actors is maybe not the best one that you could do. I'm thinking of like I very often, uh, as somebody who's done a little bit of writing myself and like or at least thought about it, I'll like read accounts by famous writers about how to how to do what they do, and you'll see things where people say like, well, you know, you have to fall in love with the ro- with the love interest in your novel, you know. Mm. Um, and I'm like, that falling in love, no, they don't actually think about cheating on their, their husband or wife with this fictional character that they've created. But there is some kind of emotion which is not so dissimilar from real emotion. Like the, the love that they feel for the character is a lot more real than the character's ability to, you know, uh, shoot fireballs or uh, come up with a great slogan for Lucky Strikes. Right, right. Like right. emotional experience is. Did God of, Draper shoot fireballs? Yes, yes. They <laughs> it's took part it in of a really weird backstory. Yeah, that must have yeah. Been a good episode. <laughs> yeah, that that, that, uh, that show has really jumped the shark. I think when uh, when Don Draper turned out to actually be uh, you know Gandalf in dis- in disguise. <laughs> 
Yes, yes. He, he first he was Gandalf the Grey, then he was Gandalf the White, and then he was the Gandalf the Palmated or something like that. <laughs> yeah. So Gandalf the Man in the Grey Flint. It's not about it's not about passing. It's about a dream. What? Hey <laughs> Pete, before we uh, before we move on, can you give us yeah. just a, a, a brief report, uh, brief, so that we can move on to a different topic of the the state of the the Magic the Gathering world <laughs> and what <laughs> what is going on in uh, Ma- in Magic the Gathering circles. Yeah, sure. I mean, I can tell you that right now. Sure. Magic the Gathering, which many of the people of my generation think of something that was very popular in like the mid to late 90s and then kind of fell off, um, is actually selling better now than it ever has before in its history. Um, the, the sets that recently came out have broken all of its sales records. It's very popular in places all over the world. Um, they, they live among you, even if they don't look like it, um, the people who play this game. Um, now, if you want something more specific... I would say that about a, what, a year or two ago, uh, they came up with this idea that they were going to reboot the creative for, for, this, for this thing. And they were, they were going to refocus the design on what they referred to as resonant fantasy images. That they'd gotten kind of far away from the idea of like sword and sorcery stuff that we were all familiar with. They were, and, they and were re- heavy into the cat boobs. Yeah, they were really too far into the, in the cat boob country, and they really needed to get back into their roots. Although the roots have involved a fair number of cat boobs, so you know. But you know what I mean? Like they, they were things were too complicated. Things were too complicated. They had made up too many fictional races. You know, they had like come up with too many different variations on anthropomorphic things that didn't make any sense, and nobody was familiar with outside of the card game. So they really got back to basics, and like they reprinted Lightning Bolt, and they they made a bunch of dragons and angels and and demons and things like that. Is this sort of uh, like you know when you have uh, like Marvel or DC? And their sort of mythology becomes way too complex, and they need to just sort of, like, simplify it? Yeah, they basically had a crisis of inf- on Infinite Earths in Magic recently, where they just kind of pared the down. And the, and the subsequent blocks that they've, that they've published have been pretty successful. They're right now about to release a new set um, about a sort of um, Lovecraft-esque... Uh, mysterious creatures from between dimensions who have like lived sleeping for thousands of years um, with the result that these things that come out, they have huge uh, casting costs and are, are very big uh, and they have tentacles and it's called the Eldrazi. So people are excited about that. They're excited about the Zendikar block. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, if you guys want to know more about magic, I can do more coverage of it. Uh, I mean, there were some people there at, at PAX playing it. Um, I actually learned how to play Epic at PAX this year. Uh, I didn't play much magic myself by the time I got out of the play. Things were kind of wound down over there. Um, but yeah, but I mean, like, I think, I think one of the good things about uh, magic right now is that the dollar is relatively weak against a variety of currencies. And for those currencies, it's, fa- it's really uh, lowered the cost of playing magic, which is a very expensive hobby. And so you've seen people from around the world pick it up. They recently had the biggest magic tournament ever in history in Madrid for example. And you wouldn't have expected that. You, I don't think a lot of people would, would actually have guessed, hey, where was the biggest Magic the Gathering tournament ever? And be like, oh, Spain. They love Magic the Gathering in Spain. You so are I mean? you telling me that at this point I should convert all of my dollars into Sarah Angels? God, no. That's horrible. Why would you do that? <laughs> don't pick Sarah Angels. See, this is why people shouldn't do their own investing. But no, I can't. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, no, Pete. No, you want Bane Slayer Angels, Jordan. Bane- let, let, me, let me ask you something. Uh, you say that they rebooted the creative because, like, their storyline was getting – or not their storyline, but, like, their fictional world was getting out of hand. Yeah. Do people who play Magic think of – like engage in any kind of role playing at all or is it just like chess no there's definitely an element of of sort of narrative experience that's in it i think it's a big part of the game really? I, mean, I think that that's that if yeah i mean i don't think that it's as as role playing ish i don't think you're seeing there being like i am x or y but the the it's referred to as flavor right the the flavor yeah. of the cards contributes to the play experience uh it makes the cards more intuitive and also i think um it explains why you have so many games of magic which frankly are terribly played and terribly set up and like as games if you actually look through it it's like it's like people nobody was paying attention to what was actually going on because they play the cards based off of um what they think about uh, the characters. There's actually very famously um, one of the, the head designer of Magic, very famously a number of years ago, put out an article talking about psychographics. Right? Uh, he put an article on the internet, and he divided the Magic players into three psychographics, which he says are the people he designs the cards for. And he named them Timmy, Johnny, and Spike. Right? And, then, and, uh, the, the, and these psychographics show up in other kinds of marketing and product design as well, not just cards, but they have different names. Uh, and the idea is that Timmy wants to experience something, Johnny wants to um, express something, and Spike wants to prove something. 
and uh, and so you make different cards for different people. So if you want to make a big dragon, you know, you make it maybe for Timmy because he wants to see the big dragon, and the experience of playing the big dragon is really exciting for him, and that's really why he plays the game. Um, and you make a bunch of complicated cards that that come together in ways that you have to customize and collect and create. You know, that's Johnny because he wants to experiment and express, uh, and that's that's why he plays the game, and it doesn't have necessarily everything to do with winning. And the spikes, the people who play the game as a strategic game like chess are a relatively small proportion of the population, even though they're a large proportion of the people who talk about it on the internet. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, no, the creative definitely matters. And I think the creative matters in any endeavor like that. I mean, I think that chess would probably be more popular if the pieces had, had better names, but it would be less popular if they had worse names. But uh-huh. isn't magic <laughs> just sort of like chess if you had to pay like $400 to get your queen? <laughs> Well, yes and no. I mean, it's not a game of perfect information, first off, right? Um, it's not. A, it's a probabilistic game. Like you have a chance of drawing a given card at a given time, so it's not a closed tree structure, right? It's um, like you. It's like it's a lot like poker in certain specific ways. Like you have to play to outs because um, there's a chance that the card that you need, you're just not going to draw it. So you need to play. You have to gauge the probabilities that you're going to draw a given card at a given time. So it's not really that much like chess. I mean, an individual board position might be like chess because you know everything that's out there more or less, and you know what options are possible. But once uh, you're actually shuffling cards, yeah, it's a bit like a Fisher random chess, right? Or like or Fisher random Kriegspiel, because like the the yeah. setup is random and you don't see your opponent's pieces. Yeah, and you I know, want to explain what Kriegspiel is. Kriegspiel <laughs> is a chess variant where you like play in two separate rooms and have somebody go back and forth, and you don't see your opponent's pieces until you collide with them. It was used to teach strategy to like the Prussian military back in the day. Yeah, yeah. There are certain similarities. There's known information and unknown information. The fog of war is a really big part of these sort of probabilistic games, definitely. That's definitely accurate. Thanks, Pete. Yeah, sure, no problem. Hey. And also the... the they're printing big creatures now, so it's crazy. But, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but the cards are normal-sized cards, right? They're not, like, oversized cards. <laughs> uh, um, more or less, yeah. More. I saw one uh, Magic card online once that, like, I guess they printed sort of a joke deck a while back, and those yes. are funny to look at if you see them, where there's one card, one creature that's actually on two cards, and you have to play them both yes. together. It's actually called the big, was it the big furry monster, right? Or, like, the... <laughs> <laughs> Anagram BFM. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like a, it's like a Halo sure. reference for something else. Exactly. Yeah. So definitely, yeah. So um, moving on in pop culture, I know from the from the sublime to the ridiculous. I know, I know. But uh, uh, Josh, I know you went to see Hot Tub Time Machine, uh, <laughs> and though this though this film has gotten a lot of positive critical attention, um, well, maybe we should we should couch that a little bit. Uh, way more posititive critical attention that you would expect a movie called Hot Tub Time Machine to get. Right? We're not it's talking about 63% like 63% on Rotten Tomatoes. Which right, is exactly. Good. Especially for uh, a comedy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, A.O. Scott in the New York Times likes it. Um, various other people whose names you've heard of. You were, uh, however, like, not impressed. I was, however, thoroughly unimpressed. Tell and us uh, so I'm going to, I'll probably. Uh, leak a spoiler or two it's gonna be hard to talk about it without doing that uh i will only say that uh you won't care so just <laughs> listen to the spoilers uh this is not a movie in which like the the sort of what happens next is really the the key element um it's what what it is is it's sort of like a, a it steals the plot of back to the future um <laughs> But instead of the 80s looking back on the 50s, it's the 2010s looking back on the 80s. Um, and, but instead of doing so with sort of a loving and yet mocking uh, vibe, it's just sort of a mocking vibe. Like uh, at one point, uh, John Cusack's character refers to the 80s or, or talks about the 80s saying, uh, they were awful. We only had Reagan and AIDS. <laughs> um, which is a pretty bleak description of, of an entire decade. And um, Cheers, too. Cheers was good. And Guns N' Roses. Guns N' Roses is yeah. awesome. <laughs> well, it's interesting for John Cusack to say it, too, because, like, you also had John Cusack. This actually raises an issue that I wanted to address and overthinking it for a while, which is that if you have an actor in a movie, is it implied that all of that actor's other movies do not exist in that universe? Typically, yes. 
Every now and then, no. Like in uh, Ocean's 13 or 12 or whatever, Julia Roberts does exist in that universe, right? But that's right, a little but bit that, different. That's but that's, a, that's the twist. That, that's how they turn it around because you, you don't think she does. Yeah, like the, the, the assumption, unquestioned assumption, is that that actor doesn't exist. And while, like, you know, you don't have people sitting around being like, man, better off dead. That movie never happened. It's, it's sort of implied <laughs> that the movies don't exist either. Okay. Yeah. And and this one, I mean, this sort of there are a lot of little homages to like the, the Cusack films of the past. Um, the ski patrol is a <laughs> villain in the piece. Um, and then you've also got Crispin Glover, uh, who's sort of a a secondary character, but sort of a constant reminder of Back to the Future. You've got a character who's flickering in and out about, you know, whether or not he's going to be born uh, in the future sort of thing. Um but it's really all just mean spirited. Like it's it's just sort of like making fun of people in the eighties and their fashion sense and sort of who they were. Um, and then it does some really weird things. Like there's the iconic scene in Back to the Future where um, and, and Belinky has talked a lot about this in the past, where where Michael J. Fox invents rock and roll. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I think well, there not may just even Blinky, be a, many of us have, have discussed. Yeah, I think there's been a post about that or two, but. Um, so they do that scene, except it's um, – I'm sorry. I don't know the actor's name, but he's the guy who's the bouncer in Knocked Up. Um, the guy from The Office, yeah. Yeah, the guy from The Office whose name I'm not going to remember. Um, and the Black Eyed Peas are involved in this in some way, right? Yes. So he goes in and he, and he, he sings a couple songs uh, at, at a sort of unnamed party. We don't know what it is. It doesn't have any of the sort of emotional resonance that uh, – that the scene in Back to the Future does. It's not like central to the plot. It's just that this one guy like used to be a singer and now he's a dog groomer and he wishes he could go back to it. And and uh, and so he goes in and he plays uh, "Let's Get It Started" by the Black Eyed Peas. And people are like, "Huh, that's different." And then they dance to it. And then that's it. <laughs> it's kind of like, like there's no. Like, I mean, and that's the- sort of like. Say again, Matt. It's kind of like Back to the Future, uh, right? Where where he invents rock and roll, but he he really kind of targets about thirty thirty years too far in the future for rock and roll. As uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, at, I, at the end point. of that, like they're all just sort of staring slack jawed at Michael J. Fox, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, in this, they're just like, oh well, that was a cool song. Well, the iron isn't the irony that back then the word retarded would have been much more socially acceptable. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, uh, that the, is not played up at that's all. That's the irony. <laughs> this is prior to Life Goes On, after all. Before we had, had seen Corey and he had changed the way we think about um, the mentally challenged forever. So, so I, I, <laughs> it's sort of the problem is that their attempt to use their knowledge of the future to sort of be totally awesome in the 80s is wholly successful then, right? Uh, like yeah, well, the, the other character ends up like actually you know, using it for a financial gain um, in sort of a lame uh, joke at the end. And this is, this is something of a spoiler. So, you know, plug your ears, but uh, one of them stays behind and, and uses his knowledge of the future to, uh, to help found Google. So the character's name is Lou. And like one of the big closing jokes of the, the movie is that uh, it's called Lugal in the uh, future. Uh, yeah. It's really, it's so I mean, like, it's, it's that <laughs> level of humor throughout uh, so I really don't understand what the critics like so much. Here's my only – the only thing I can think of of why the critics like it so much is that they are 10 years older than we are. Because hmm. um, this is very much a movie about men in their 40s going back to their 20s. Um, except that one kid who's right. Who's, except uh, the one kid. But he's really there. He's sort of there as a an audience um, – you know, a, a representation of the audience and sort of comments on the action as we might, uh, were we there. But, uh, yeah, I think the the scene with the black eyed peas sort of epitomized the problem with the movie. Cause it's just like, here's this great scene and all these people are dancing. And then, yeah, it was a reference that we made. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, it's worth seeing like, I just sort of as a, you know, Cordray's pretty funny. Some of the jokes are pretty funny. 
it's about, control is always nice, but like, don't spend your money on it. You know. How about this? Like, uh, like any of the movies set on a mountain in the '80s, starring John Cusack, it's worth watching when it comes on TV as you're ironing your shirts. That is exactly <laughs> how it is worth watching. They should have played closer by Nine Inch Nails for the crowd. That would have been pretty amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or you know, like something auto-tuned. Um, I mean, I guess Black Eyed Peas is pretty auto-tuned, but they had Roger Troutman back then. It wouldn't have been that surprising. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, yeah, honestly, like Roger Troutman, I hope that he's getting some royalties or something off of T Pain because wow. Hey, yeah. McNeil, let me ask you this. I mean, obviously, this you know this this movie isn't quite the one where it's you know uh, where story and consistency around plot are particularly important. But anytime a time travel time travels uses a storytelling element in a movie, um, it just it just begs for you know, uh, for people like us to pick it apart um, and find all the problems with it. Was that, was it one of those types of things? Um, basically what I'm kind of asking is, um, it, you know, when we have, when you put time travel in a movie, um, are, have we reached this point now where it's just so, so problematic and it's kind of all been done before where uh, you're just asking for trouble? Well, I mean, the, the movie's very self-conscious about that. I mean, I think the title alone sort of said, says like you don't say if you're going to be the person who like deconstructs this you need to go do something else like go outside <laughs> for a while i say fire on that, fire <laughs> on that. <laughs> um i think that's very much sort of the attitude they take with it honestly you don't care at all i mean for a while there they're trying not to change things and then they say screw it let's change i mean it does that that's not at all the point the point is to see some funny actors pretend like be pretend they're like in their early 20s and the 80s again um, but, and then, okay, Chevy Chase is the sort of mysterious figure who comes in and, like, explains how it works. Um, how top, how top, top time machine trouble Sort works. of the godfather yeah. of that decade. Yeah, I mean, he's sort of playing, yeah, he's, he's a little bit of a character of himself there, but, um, mostly he's just cryptic and weird, uh, in a role that I'm really, really enjoyed him in, actually. He, he said that just doesn't matter at all. Um, and then disappears mysteriously, which if you're watching him in community at all is actually, uh, a very similar sort of character. And and he's, he's actually quite good. Is Chevy Chase sort of like the David Carradine of comedy that he's there to sort of like carry some of the gravitas of his earlier, more memorable roles. Have you seen, he's good in community. He's funny. Yeah. Yeah, I thought he killed himself masturbating. <laughs> Wait, David Carradine in the community? Kill him so much? <laughs> I'm pretty sure David Carradine is dead. No, no that's just what they Chase. want you to think. It's a conspiracy. They don't want you to know that David Carradine is alive and walks the earth practicing kung fu to right wrongs. <laughs> I think Actually, his heart they... exploded after Uma Thurman did that thing to him. <laughs> they were the same. They're the same person, David Carradine and Chevy Chase, actually. And actually, they're they're also both the same person as uh, Peter Jennings. In a way, they're both the same person. Exactly. In a way, David Carradine has always been with us. (laughs) I will say, I I do like Chevy Chase on Community, but there is a certain sense in which you're happy to see him because you remember, you know, Christmas Vacation and all those other things. Sure. Well, happy to see him him be good, that just means you're not an asshole. Mm. Yes, no, no, that's true. I mean, because it's not like he's bad and you give him a pass, but you're you have you're more happy to see him succeed. There's a little bit of like the uh, the figure skating phenomenon, right? Where no one actually enjoys watching a lutz, right? You're happy when they don't fall down because they could have fallen down, right? I think that Chevy Chase on Community, while he is funny, there is a certain bit, uh, a certain amount of watching a lutz because you're like, hey, Chevy Chase was good. I remember when Chevy Chase used to be good all the time and it wasn't even a big deal. Mm. Which is ironic because Chevy Chase's entire career was built on falling down. Um, which he still does really well. There's a scene where he goes through a band room in community and like does some pratfalls that are just absolutely classic. Wait, you're referring to the Gerald Ford impress- impression that he did? Back yeah, that was what, what made him famous the first time around. Mm, indeed, which he reprised recently. I don't know if you guys saw the, uh, the Funny or Die um, reunion of all the SNL presidential impersonators recently. Anyone? Did they, just me? they had everybody who did that? Uh, do it. Everyone going back to... Uh, I think Ford. 
Funny your die has some clout to pull a thing like that off. Yeah, it was pretty impressive. Yeah, it was it was cool. I mean, and the, all the SNL, and they added Jim Carrey to it, I think, as uh, Reagan. Yes. To great effect. Yeah. Because some, like, I don't know, Phil Hartman did Reagan or something like that. Yeah, it must have been. So like Reagan, he too is, he too is dead. That's too bad. Is Jim That's Carrey not... like the new Phil Hartman? No. Jim Carrey? Jim Carrey? <laughs> I don't know. It's like, Jim, why Jim Carrey then? Jim, yes, man, Carrey. <laughs> Jim, Bruce Almighty, Carrey. <laughs> we could do this all day. <laughs> Jim, Jim, the majestic Carrey. <laughs> Jim, Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events, Carrey. <laughs> That's actually, if you can make yourself watch that movie, Jim Carrey is a delight in it. I've watched it three times on the Greyhound bus, and delight is not the word I would use for watching movies on the Greyhound bus. <laughs> I have no idea whether it's the relative quality of the movie, but the only movie I've really enjoyed watching on the Greyhound bus was The Pacifier, which was pretty spectacular. But that was the Vin Diesel babysitting movie. Um, the Candidate with Robert Redford was also pretty good. But on a bus, on a Greyhound bus, yes. I saw uh, Mighty Joe Young. We just oh, how- it's like King Kong, but less big. Let's be, he's a little smaller. Yeah, he's a little smaller. And they're like, who decided that that would be better? Prince Kong. Who's like, what's you everyone will. hate about or King Do- Kong? Dauphin Kong. <laughs> People don't like royalty, you know? We don't like to have kings ever since ancient Rome. <laughs> People yep. want to be ruled by other kinds of people. It's true. We have, a, we have a very egalitarian society. Oh, yeah, totally. We are, we're all... Really, uh, the same, you know, people with equal dignity under under either God or whatever God you worship or lack of God or any of that other stuff that you care about. Mm. The important thing is that giant gorillas know no country. Uh, <laughs> um, and also that if you Google Mighty Joe Young, you come across Mighty Joe Young's in 610 West Hartsdale Avenue, White Plains, New Jersey, which is some sort of prefix fancy dining restaurant with palm trees. Uh, <laughs> but you can call them to make reservations. They do catering. Um, and Jim, they use a crazy font. What? Jim the Cable Guy, Carrie. <laughs> Jim Batman Forever, Carrie. Oh, yeah, I remember that. That, that may have been the low point for pretty much movies. Do you guys remember Fire Marshal Bill? I remember Fire Marshal Bill. Yeah, that is, sure you know something. actually, Jordan, that is a movie, right? Like, Jim Carrey is a guy where if I were to see him in something and... Uh, he were to be really good, I would be like, hey, that makes me feel good. Because I remember when Jim Carrey was on In Living Color, and he was always good. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. I still have... Let me show you something. <laughs> he had a couple... I mean, Ace Ventura, that was a funny movie back in the day, right? In the first one? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the then, Mask I mean, wasn't bad. He's not, I like right. The Mask a lot. I thought Eternal Sunshine was good. It's true. Uh, oh, yeah. I thought Man in the Moon was good. I thought Liar, There's Liar. There's me, my, me, myself, and Irene. Me, myself, and Irene is, um, never mind. Liar, Liar. <laughs> <laughs> Does liar. anyone know what, like, the number 27 was about? Did anyone get that? It, uh, wow. It's yeah, number 23, I, I, isn't it? Isn't the number I don't know. Wait, what number was it and why was it's it? It's about Don Mattingly. It's about the first baseman for the New York Yankees, Don Mattingly, and he's obsessed with him. He's a great hitting coach. He honestly Jim. is. I don't really <laughs> see him as a Jim Carrey Carrey. Jim, the number 23. Carrey. Well, hey, uh, we know that when we know that when we're, um, uh, when when we've begun just incorporating a lot of titles from a certain artist from a certain actor's movies into the podcast, we know then that it is time to wrap. So we, I think, will leave our conversation there for uh, the week. But <laughs> I feel like I'm a shrink, <laughs> you know, saying that. Well, it's time to stop for today, everybody. That you know, any last thoughts you want to share? All right. Anyone ever see uh, Once Bitten? Yeah, I like that movie. That was funny. Is that the story of that great white fire in that club? (laughs) (laughs) There's a scene where he plays his leg like a guitar. It's a great movie for watching in Comedy Central on a Sunday afternoon in the summer when you're 16 or so. It's a movie about vampires and virginity. And it's the the classic bait and switch where the vampires want a virgin and you never expect it to be a dude who's Jim Carrey and is a virgin. Oh my god, he's so embarrassed. Um, And it's about him, I think, becoming a vampire. Um... Sort of, so which is totally code topic. for doing it even back then. It, He's got kind of Robert Patterson hair before Robert Patterson had Robert Patterson hair. 
You know, it's sort of like a little pompadour type thing. Mm. I guess so. His was more spiky, right? Yeah, but that was the style at the time. No, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> it was Proto Patterson. It's true. Proto- <laughs> oh, God. Uh, all right. If you have anything you want to add to the nonsense that we have been spouting for the last hour, you can email us at podcast at overthinkingit.com or call the voicemail at 203-285-6401. That's 203-285-6401. Hey, uh, you know, it kind of came out in the chat room that, some, you know, we have readers who don't really listen to the podcast, but we believe we have podcast listeners that don't really listen to the show. Uh, that, think about that. I just let, let me back that up. We have podcast <laughs> listeners that don't really read the articles on the site. I think you mm-hmm. should do that. You know, we'll be back next week with another episode of the podcast. But until then, you know what you should do? You should visit our website. What site, you ask? Why, it's overthinkingit.com, the site where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It Now, if you're one of those uh, podcast listeners who doesn't like to read the articles and you want us to start a podcast where we just read vintage overthinking and articles start to finish uh, for an hour at a time, let us know. We'll, we'll work on it. See, when you're telling people to go to the website and read the articles, you're discriminating against the illiterate portion of our audience. And the illiterate are a substantial portion of our readership. <laughs> I, I don't read the website for the articles. I read it for the pornography. <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha